The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. And welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Beth Stratford. We spoke about the crisis of UK land ownership and housing and what can be done about it. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. What is wrong with capitalism and how can we change it? Eric Olin Wright has distilled decades of work into how to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century. Analysing the varieties of anti-capitalism, assessing different strategic approaches and laying the foundations for a society dedicated to human flourishing, it is an urgent and powerful argument for socialism and an unparalleled guide to helping us get there. Visit versobooks.com for more information about the book. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you've been enjoying the show and finding it useful, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It really does make a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. Beth Stratford is co-author of Land for the Many, Changing the Way Our Fundamental Asset is Used, Owned and Governed, which was the topic of our conversation. She's a fellow at the New Economics Foundation and is currently researching a PhD looking at how to bring about the euthanasia of the rentier and to reprogram the economy for a finite planet. Before we get to the interview, here's just a quick note from the authors of the Land for the Many report. Several recommendations made by the co-authors in the report were backed by the Labour Party conference this year, including the proposals to stabilise nominal house prices, to set up a new public development corporation with the power to purchase land at closer to existing use value and to develop land in public interest, also to publish all information about land ownership control, subsidies and planning as open data, to end the fire sale of public land and to substantially strengthen tenants' rights. The co-authors are keen to find activists and campaigners who might be interested in forming a Labour for Land Reform group, not dissimilar to the Labour for Green New Deal or Labour for a Four-Day Week groups who ran such great campaigns this year, in order to push for more of the report's recommendations to be adopted as Labour Party policy. They're also keen to find more lawyers who can help explore the legal implications of implementing these policies, So if you're interested in getting involved in either way, please drop the authors a line using the contact form at their website, landforthemany.uk. So the report that you've co-written, it states that many of the major problems of the UK economy from the housing crisis, inequality, and even environmental degradation are in significant part due to the way land is owned and controlled in the UK. Could you sort of outline the way the problem of land ownership fosters these various sort of social maladies? Yeah, okay, so to take one at a time. So in terms of the housing crisis, 
land is is really at the heart of it because the housing cost increases that we've seen over the last 25 years don't stem from some mysterious increase in the price of bricks and mortar it's the value of land underneath houses that's increased in value by over 500% since 1995. And, and we, we know that because if, if you take a house worth a million pounds in London and knock it down and then put it on the market again, the plot of land itself will get easily 80, 90% of that price. Um, so we know it's, it's the value underneath, which is driving house price inflation. And I'm sure we'll get on to unpack the drivers behind that inflation, but just to stick to your question, how does that drive inequality? Well. In a number of ways, I mean, as residential land values and therefore house prices increase, you know, you get communities more segregated on, on socioeconomic lines. So, you, you know, you, you get poorer households who are just priced out of areas with good schools and, and clean air and jobs and, and so on. The higher the residential land prices get, the more, if you're lucky enough to have some agricultural land that you manage to get planning permission for, then the scale of your jackpot is all the greater because of the land price inflation we've seen. So, you you know, overnight you can see the value of your land increase by 2,000%. So the value increased by 250 times. And so this feeds into land being a prime site of speculation. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So that then feeds into all the dysfunctions on the on the sort of supply side of our housing system because developers are no longer really they don't make money out of building houses. They make money out of playing the planning system and, and, and navigating the sort of the land market. But of course, it's not just people who get planning permission who benefit from land price rises. It's also just just anybody who owns land or owns houses. And so, you know, as land prices rise, the more that inheritance and, and sort of capital gains just dwarf, just overshadow the rewards that you get for actually going out to work. So I, I've calculated that for 10 out of the last 20 years, the owner of an average house in London has benefited more, has gained more from annual house price inflation than than an, an average worker can earn by going out to work full time for a year. I mean, it's, it's completely galling. And so we've sort of created this system where if you can't draw upon the bank of mum and dad and, and you end up sort of stuck in the private rented sector, you're sort of doubly screwed because you're missing out on all this, this fabulous capital gains that, that other people are enjoying. But you're also working a huge chunk of your of every week or, or every month just to give your landlord uh, line the pocket of your landlord and I think that's you know for me that's really key you know to understand that the land and housing market is a zero-sum game so like the windfall gains for some are mirrored by deprivation and exclusion for other people and you know you see that you see that very obviously in rough sleeping but but it's it's also hidden. It's hidden in, you know, the compromises that people have to make to make ends meet. And that might mean commuting for much longer. It might mean putting up with damp, overcrowding, you know, things that actually have a really big impact on life chances and health and, and well-being. Sorry, I focused a lot on um, on housing there, but actually the same exclusion happens in agriculture because we've seen, again, nearly 500% increase in the value of agricultural land, which just means that it's completely out of reach for people whose primary interest is in farming or, or many people who, who wish to actually start out as farmers. 
you know, it shouldn't be that surprising to us now that in, in 2017, only 40% of farm sales went to farmers. The rest went to, you know, investors and speculators. But you also asked about ecological collapse and, and how land ownership and control relates to that. I mean, that just stems from the fact that agriculture and land use have major impacts on wildlife and climate change. So agriculture is responsible for, I think, about 10% of the UK's total carbon emissions. And if we're to get to net zero emissions, then we've really got to change the way we use land. We've got to reduce livestock production, restore our peat bogs, increase woodland cover, and so on. And similarly, you know, that the threat to wildlife the major threat is coming from industrialised agriculture. You know, farmland birds have, have plummeted about 56% since the 70s. So, you know, if we want to reverse that damage that we're doing to wildlife and ecosystems, we have to reassert democratic control over the use of land. And, and that might mean just strengthening, you know, regulations around pesticides or, or, or sparing more land for, for rewilding and so on. But um, So it's not just about ownership, it's also about the sort of the rules that govern the obligations or the privileges that landowners enjoy. The report points to the unusual lack of transparency regarding land ownership in the UK. Could you say something about that lack of transparency and what the effects of it are? In England and Wales, the only definitive way to discover who owns a piece of land is to go and buy that information from the land registry at two no, three pounds, in fact, three pounds a pop. So it would actually cost... 72 million pounds to reveal who owns England and Wales and in fact actually the land registry doesn't have all the data it needs because land registration hasn't been compulsory except for at the point of sale so yeah and I mean that has a whole bunch of of different ramifications large developers obviously find it much easier to to afford those fees um uh, whereas you know small house builders will, will struggle to identify the owners of suitable building land so that kind of creates an information asymmetry between larger and smaller house builders which has kind of encouraged this very concentrated and dysfunctional housing uh, market and in fact even public bodies have to pay to obtain this information and that I mean that just makes land use it just makes it possible to take a, a really big strategic view of land use. You know, if you want to successfully manage land use, you need to know who owns it. Another outcome is that it makes it very difficult to sort of scrutinise and, and step in to block the sell-off of, of government property and public lands, which we've seen you know, this fire sale going on over recent years. Communities just don't know what land is belongs to a local authority and when it's going to be sold and why and to who. And the opacity around land ownership also kind of makes makes the UK a, a kind of magnet for for money laundering and, and and criminal operations. And so one of the one of the recommendations that we have is to tax land ownership by companies based in secrecy jurisdictions uh, via a sort of offshore uh, company property tax. Fifteen uh, percent on 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 the purchase of property, but those policies can't be enforced unless we have more robust and open information. So yeah, so we ha- yeah we have a whole bunch of, of detailed re- recommendations on 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 how um, information about land ownership and control and subsidies and planning all need to be published as open open and free data. So the land registry really needs to kind of come back to return to being a sort of executive agency of government.
and the ordnance survey as well and they've got they've got enormous surplus they've got you know the land registry has this enormous surplus of, of like five five hundred million pounds in, in cash reserves as well which which we actually propose be be used um, to support some of the other initiatives in the in the uh, report such as supporting community right to buy community land trusts and, and so on when we talk about the housing crisis uh, i mean what you describe in terms of that division between a home-owning public and the sector of the public, which has to spend exorbitant amounts on rent. Obviously, that's not a new feature of the British economy. So, you know, when we talk about the housing crisis, do you think to some extent what we're talking about is the increase of that sector of the population, which has to, uh, which is forced to rent and, and the prospect of home ownership is becoming more and more unreal and that therefore the, you know, the, the calculation that conservative governments make, which is the home ownership is sufficiently broad that they can use it to shore up their electoral coalition and, and to continue to win to win elections and and that's in some sense that's the crisis the crisis is not structural but it's kind of the increase in the in the intensity of that division um i mean i certainly think that the fact that high housing costs are now affecting a larger proportion of middle class people has put it on the agenda but the housing crisis goes far beyond that because housing costs as a proportion of incomes have also increased dramatically. I think, I wish I, I could look up the statistics, I don't have them on the top of my head, but just since 2002, rent prices have increased by like 16%, whereas wages have only gone, gone up by 2%. And, uh, you know, actually, until the sort of early 90s, the cost of being a renter were comparable to the cost of being a mortgaged homeowner. And then they just like diverged really dramatically. So, you know, that's, part, that's partly due to falling interest rates, but it's also due to rising rents. So now the costs facing a renter are uh, twice, almost twice in absolute terms, but in, in terms of the proportion of their income, it's about three times. So it's it's a real, yeah, but the... the you know, renters are just screwed in a, in a way that I think is quite new, um, or at least new new in the last um, few decades. When the housing crisis is discussed in the media, in terms of solutions, I mean, the the overwhelming solution that you hear suggested is house building on a, you know on a very large scale. But the report argues that this would actually have relatively little effect in making housing more affordable, which seems you know quite counterintuitive. Could you explain why that is and, and what measures the report suggests instead to tackle the housing crisis? Yeah, absolutely. But before I do, I just want to be clear that it's not a sort of instead. We do think that we need to scale up the housing supply and particularly social housing. And we actually have a bunch of proposals to support that ambition, you know, from uh, setting up these public development corporations, which would sort of lead on the process of land assembly and use powers of, of compulsory purchase at existing use value in order to um, to make the cost of building more affordable housing much lower. But yeah, you're right. One of the key messages of the report is precisely that, that we can't just build our way out of the housing crisis. And, you know, I, I think people can be forgiven for believing that housing costs have gone up simply because there aren't enough homes to go around because it sounds plausible. And it's certainly true that the rate of house, house building did collapse after the state withdrew from house building. But 
as an explanation for house price increase and rent price increase, it just it's just not borne out by the data because you know since the mid '90s, throughout the housing boom, the number of housing stock was growing faster than not only faster than the population, but also faster than the number of households. And that that holds even if you sort of take account of hidden households, you know, people who are living at home with their parents and so on. And so, you know, what's true is that demand has outstripped supply. That much is true. But the problem is that people, what people kind of need to get their heads around is that demand is not simply determined by the number of people who want somewhere to live, right? It's, mm, it's, it's speculators as well. It is, exactly. It's the attractiveness of homes as financial assets or as second homes, but also the purchasing power that's available to people bidding in the housing market. And both of those things have been inflated by identifiable policies. So, for example, you know, we had this process of deregulation of the financial market and the you know, invention of securitization, which effectively just opened the floodgates for easy, cheap credit. This is the, the, the Big Bang under uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Exactly. Actually, there were reforms even before that in the 1970s and Credit Competition Act that sort of laid the groundwork. But um, from an individual perspective, having access to cheap credit will seem like a very positive thing. But if everybody is able to stand on tiptoes, if you like, then nobody gets a better view. And in fact, it's worse than that, nobody getting a better view because it, you end up with these um, feedbacks in the in the housing market between the behaviour of banks and house prices, which generates sort of systemic instability and vulnerability in, in the economy. But anyway, so there's that that whole process that's gone on, and then there's kind of you know various changes like the dismantling of tenants' rights again by Thatcher and, and the, the shift of taxes away from property and onto labour. The introduction of special mortgage products for landlords, which you know put them at a, an advantage over over first-time buyers. All of these things, you know, that make houses more attractive as financial assets. And these things kind of combine. They're such a powerful force that even if we now built three hundred thousand homes a year for the next few decades, we'd barely make a dent in house prices and that I mean I, I say that on the basis of the sensitivities in the government's own model of the housing market there's a good blog about, about this by Ian Mulhern and it's just really important to get the diagnosis right here because if we don't then we give a free rein to people who would point the finger at migrants you know and go around saying that the solution to the housing crisis is to, is to stop immigration or who'd you know point at you know, the planning system, which uh, tries to introduce some level of democratic control over development and just say, well, we need to rip up this red tape and start building on the countryside. Um, you know, those those are just those those are just false solutions. And so for you, the rollout of, of new build needs to be part of a broader set of responses to the crisis. Could you sort of describe those other responses that you think need to be part of that uh, mix? Yeah, of course. So... We talk about quite bold reforms to property taxation, both to, to discourage the use of homes as financial assets, but also encourage a more efficient use of the housing stock, whilst incidentally reducing the burden on the majority of households. You know, because the current council tax system is so deeply regressive, you know, that people 
you know, I think it's um, people owning a house worth £100,000 will have a tax rate of five times higher than someone who owns a house worth a million pounds. So, you know, the capital gains taxes at the moment on second homes investment properties is lower than the rate of taxation on on income that you earn. So there's all sorts of just really perverse injustices in the tax system that ought to be fixed for their own sake. But yeah, we'll help to discourage the use of homes as, as financial assets. Sorry, I didn't actually say what we propose to put in their place. So we propose a progressive property tax, which would be based on current property prices, which would have a tax-free allowance for the cheapest 10% of properties in each area, which would be levied at a higher rate on second homes and investment properties, which would be payable by owners and not tenants, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to go into too much detail on this. So we've also got a bunch of proposals around strengthening tenants' rights. And again, these are things that ought to be done for their own sake, because we urgently need to address the insecurity and exploitation experienced by renters, but they have the, the added benefit of dampening demand from buy-to-let landlords, which is still very high. Like in spite, George Osborne, to his credit, did introduce very belatedly, did sort of start to reduce the tax breaks for landlords. But I, I looked up the figures for the first quarter of 2019, and uh, landlords still, I think it was about a quarter of all new mortgage advances were for buy to landlords. It's a huge addition of demand in the housing market. We recommend giving the Bank of England a stabilize, a house price stabilisation target, which is effectively a land price stabilisation target, and a bunch of macroeconomic tools to kind of encourage a shift in, in bank lending away from real estate and other inflationary um, and sort of non-productive forms of lending. And then we've got we've got also sort of restrictions on um, on holiday planning, restrictions on holiday homes and so on. So those are all policies which would help to end the inflation of house prices. But we actually, I, I feel like one of the unique contributions of the report is to be one of the few analyses that just acknowledge very honestly that one of the challenges here, you know, just because house price inflation is 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 damaging and, and, and bad for society, it doesn't mean that house price deflation is good. And, you know, one of the problems that we have is what now that house prices have been so inflated by debt and speculation, they're, they're extremely vulnerable to reversal as soon as you get a change of expectations, which changes the behaviour of banks or the behaviour of, um, of landlords and speculators. And that's, you know, that sort of realisation, that fear of causing a house price crash that would be terrible for the economy and would push people into negative equity that fear is is legitimate fear and i suppose a fear that prevents anyone doing anything about this problem because it's just you, you know to, to attempt to tackle the problem is to perhaps invite a worse situation i think it does get in the way yeah i think it does and um and that's why we you know we, we have this policy in there called the common ground trust which is you know, which is developed partly as a as a lever to introduce more stable, sustainable forms of demand into the housing market at the same time as we are discouraging the more volatile and sort of socially damaging forms of demand. So the way it does this is by offering support to ordinary people who want to buy a house in order to have real 
agency over the space they live in, which is a perfectly legitimate aspiration. So what would happen is if they, you know, if they found you find a house you want to buy, you can't afford to buy the whole thing. You'd approach the common ground trust and ask them to purchase the land underneath the house. And on average, land accounts for about 70% of the property price. So you'd then go and seek mortgage finance to cover the bricks and mortar, but that would require a much smaller deposit than is currently the case. So what that means is that with one hand, you're able to discourage demand from buy-to-let landlords and speculators and second homeowners. And with another hand, you're able to support tenants themselves to buy those houses that come up for sale, if that makes sense. You do that not just because, oh, isn't home ownership great? We want people to move into home ownership. Actually, you know, you, you create this new form of tenure where land rents can be socialised. Sorry, because what I didn't explain is that in return for the support from the Common Ground Trust to buy the land underneath your house, you start paying a land rent to the Common Ground Trust. So instead of that land rent being sort of siphoned off by landlords or banks, it becomes, you, you know, we can pool it, we can use it to address need. So if you, you know, you hit unemployment or sickness or retirement and if for some reason you can't keep up your land payments, then a discount is available to those people on the basis of need. Does that make sense? So you kind of you've got a means of sort of socialising land rents, um, which it's a sort of different approach. You know, traditionally, I guess the, the Georgists would go down the land taxation route, but, but obviously there were huge, huge challenges with with introducing a, a land value tax at any significant rate at this point. But this is sort of another route to, to, to a similar kind of outcome, if that makes sense. Would you see it as almost a kind of halfway house between renting and owning and if it is that is that do you think somewhat a little bit problematic in terms of that it might seem as if you are kind of pandering to this british obsession with with home ownership without entirely giving people exactly what they want in, in terms of actually owning their own home i think if what people want is a speculative asset which allows them to make unearned income off the basis of value rises that are to do with much broader societal changes and not their own contribution or work then no it doesn't give people what they want and they we and I just don't think they should be given what they want but if people want a sense of having security that they can stay in the home and that they can put roots down in their community they can renovate they can de- redecorate they can do whatever they want to their property then yes it does it does and I don't personally think that those are that there's anything wrong with those those aspirations. It's not for everybody, but I think yeah, I think I think it would be popular. It's just very tricky trying to sort of square this circle. Like, how do you respond to the demands of renters? You know, bring in much greater security of tenure and rent controls, and how do you tax? property fairly and blah 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 without causing a crash in the housing market I mean this is a huge huge dilemma for us and for me this seems like a potential solution to that dilemma it might not be perfect but you know it's floated there as a potential solution for 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 scrutiny and for discussion just going back to the diagnosis of the report if land ownership is so key to these questions of of inequality and environmental degradation and and so on. Why do you think that there's so little discussion about land ownership, um, particularly on the left? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question, particularly because 
land reform was so central to political debate in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century. Why, why was that lost? This could be a bit controversial, but I wonder if some of the failures of the land reform movement stem from the fact that many people who sort of identify as land reformers have, have remained in that 19th century headset a bit in this sort of Georgist analysis of the world. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure the Georgist analysis of the world will be familiar to everybody. No, sorry, so. yeah. <laughs> so Henry George was responsible for, was one of the most high-profile political economists who brought the injustice and exploitation that comes from ownership of land and extraction of land rents to, you know, to popular consciousness. And, you know, Georgists were often referred to as single taxes because of their proposal that we, 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 we implement a land value tax and that that's, that's it. That's all we need to do. We can, <laughs> I mean, I might be um, <laughs> so slightly exaggerating here, but really often uh, a land value tax is presented as a sort of panacea to society's problems. And, you know, Henry George was right about a lot of things, but one of the things that I think he was very wrong about was he had this sort of theory that wages and returns to capital by, by which, uh, you know, means of production, produced means of production, were regulated naturally by the rates of wages and returns to capital at the frontier. And so, it, you know, in a way, it, it was the same sort of criticisms that you can levy at neoclassical economics, you can levy at Henry George. And that, so that sort of unwillingness to realise that there are a bunch of different types of asset which give owners or whoever controls them the power to extract incomes which are very analogous to land rents in the sense of being unearned and in the sense of being inefficient. You know, his sort of unwillingness to recognise that power in different sites around the economy, you know, intellectual property and uh, digital platform. I mean, they weren't, obviously, to be fair to Henry George, digital platforms did not exist um, when he was writing. But, um, you know, I think that kind of analysis sort of got in the way of a powerful uh, alliance between land reformers and those who, you know, were concerned with broader forms of uh, emancipation, economic emancipation. And it means it's still, you know, sometimes debates around land reform get stuck in this really boring debate about land value tax. So that might be a part of the reason. And I guess another explanation for the neglect of land reform is just that the prospect of getting land reform has looked pretty bleak for much of the last century with, you know, hereditary peers dominating the House of Lords and, 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 and landowners dominating the media and, and political parties. And lots of landlords in the House of Commons, of course. Exactly. But I mean, it's, it's not quite fair to say that the issue of land has been absent entirely. There was lots of discussion about democratic control and ownership of land, land value capture after World War Two. you know, with the uh, introduction of the planning system and social house building and the Labour introducing this development charge, which was tried to capture the rise in value that comes with the granting of planning permission, very quickly repealed by the Conservatives. And again, in the early 70s, we did have a sort of mini revival of interest in land reform, again, because because of left-wing Labour governments sort of opening up the, the, the possibility for it. And so I, I sort of think that it's risen to prominence now, again, partly because of the change in leadership in the Labour Party, making it plausible that land reform could be on the agenda, but but also because 
of the housing crisis and because you know the dysfunctions of, of, the, of the housing market had sort of forced it back onto the agenda and and then of course with Scotland you know Scotland leading the way in many ways I guess you know the, partly because the concentration of land ownership is so astonishing there you know it's bad it's bad in England and Wales but I think in England and Wales it's like 25,000 people owning 50% of the land in Scotland it's 400 and something landowners so I think you know so the process of, of devolution and independence sort of brought up these issues of land reform in Scotland and that's helped to bring it back on the agenda here. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other a podcast from Tribune magazine if you would like to hear the extended version of this interview please consider supporting the show via Patreon you can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other thanks for listening I'll be back next week